pleased to have with us a, when you hear the words master musician, it is rare. We have a master musician in the house with us today, Al Demiola, who hails from, of all places, Bergenfield, New Jersey. Welcome so much. Thank you, man. Thank you so much, too. We have enjoyed... Yeah, happy to be here. Happy to be here. Yeah. You know, we... You thank you. Your name came up on the show. I was talking about your music with Return to Forever, and we had a caller that uh, called in and said, wow, yes, you do know he grew up in Bergenfield, New Jersey. I did not know. But Al Demiola, you are a virtuoso guitarist. At 19 years old, you were asked to step in to one of the most influential groups in music history, American music history. That would be Chick Corea and Return to Forever. What was that like for you? Oh, my God. Well, it was at that time, uh, you know, from probably the age of 17, uh, it had become probably my favorite band, you know. And uh, I'd, I'd gone to see Chick with the early edition of Return to Forever when it was uh, a Latin, kind of a Brazilian jazz group with Ayrton Floor and Stanley and Joe Farrell. So I was really digging that music too. But then when he, uh, when he went over to the electric side of things, after being influenced by what John McLaughlin was doing, Ma Fishner, that kind of fell more into what, you know, what my likings were, especially because I owned the Les Paul guitar and, you know, I was thrilled with that combination of Les Paul to Marshall. So I went to see Chick play twice with the electric band up in Boston while I was attending Berkeley School of Music. The second time I saw him, first time was great. Second, first time actually was with Steve Gadd on drums. We couldn't stay with the band. Second time was with Lenny, and they had changed their guitarist. To, uh, they had, uh, I think it was a Earl Klug playing a Les Paul guitar, which I thought was really out of character. Great guitar player, great acoustic player, but never known him to be an electric player. So what I did was I called back home in New Jersey, and I, and I relayed the story to to this guy who was like my big brother. He was like seven years older than me, friend of my sister's, and, and he was like a, an amateur recording engineer. And he was like this like kind of old hippie type, like a Woodstock hippie guy, always high. You know, anyway, Michael was his name, Michael Bayukis. Michael, I tell him the story, and he took it upon himself to find a tape that he had made of me playing with the Barry Miles Quartet in New Jersey prior to going to Berkeley. So he uh, he just went in the city and he found Chick. He found out where the management lived. They all kind of lived in the same apartment on the Upper, upper West Side. And he just hounded them. He said, you've got to hear this tape. You've got to hear. It really was a special tape of a live show. And uh, I get this call from Chick while I was in my apartment in Boston. And he goes, oh, is this Al Demiola? I said, yes. Uh, who's this? It's Chick Corea. I said, yeah, yeah, it's not, it's not Chick Corea. <laughs> anyway. He said, no, this is Chick. Your friend Mike came over with a tape, and we're all knocked out. And we'd love for you to come to New York and join the band. And it wasn't like try out for the band. Join the band. So, I, you know, I was, I thought it was a, a very surreal moment for me, right? So, uh, you know, I, I just packed my bag and I went back to New Jersey. Went to my parents' house in Bergenfield, New Jersey, and uh, knocked on the screen door. 
because my mother always had it locked during the day. And she goes, what are you doing home from school? Like all excited and everything. I said, well, I'm playing at Carnegie Hall on Tuesday night. <laughs> my, father was, my father's in the background going, you're not playing Carnegie Hall. Get the hell out of here. You're not playing Carnegie Hall. I said, Dad, I'm playing Carnegie Hall. No, you're not. Stop it now. What are you doing home from school? I said, Dad, I've got the chance of a lifetime. You know, and his, uh, his name is Chick Corea. He goes, who's Chuck Corea? I never heard of Chuck Corea. <laughs> no, it's Chick Corea, Dad. So that four nights later, I think we had two or three rehearsals in the city. Really difficult charts. But I could read music, and I think that's really, you know, how I got the gig. You know, it would have been impossible for somebody to learn it that fast without it. Reading knowledge, and uh, that's it. My first gig was Carnegie Hall. I was nervous as hell, and that led to a whole month on the road doing a combination of theaters, clubs, and stadiums. The stadiums were part of like the Newport Jazz Festival with a lot of other acts. And then at the end of that uh, three-week tour, we went into the record plant, recording studios in New York. John Lennon was in the next room, so then it became ultra surreal for me, you know, just a wild ride. And it's been like that ever since just a wild ride. That is an incredible story. Now you had when, what album, do you remember what album you recorded then? Was it, uh, the, the second album or was it the, the return to forever? Which was the name? Uh, where have I known you before? Yeah. Where have I known you before was their second electric record, but it was my first record with the band. That was your first record. It was no mystery. Hmm? That is incredible that that was your first record. Your performance on that record is nothing short of amazing. I mean, you've had... I I never thought it was. You know, I mean, we had two days to record a whole record. Two. Whoa. Because Chick was was really in the mindset, you know, and, 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 you know, with all amazingly due respect. You know, Chick was in a bebop mindset. And what, because those kind of guys grew up with that kind of music, you know, they really never had budgets to go last more than a day or two. So I remember, I think it was like a two-day recording and then maybe a day of mixing or something like that. So it was whatever came out, you know, that was the take. <laughs> you know, there may have been two takes and that's it, next tune. Whether you liked it or not. And I, I know I never got a chance to like, you know, polish anything or there was really very little production at that time because we didn't have a massive budget until we got signed much later with CBS. You are really blowing my mind because all of, I was a teenager then and all of us that were into music, number one, that album reached people that would not normally listen to what then became called fusion jazz. Okay. It was just so powerful. It reached the people that were normally listening to R&B or listening to Top 40, but they really got into the music. And that album, I remember being in the neighborhood, and back then we were walking around with vinyl records if we wanted to share, and people were just fascinated with that record, fascinated with the playing of it. I mean, okay, so shift from there, because in the interest of time, and maybe we'll do a longer set later, um, because I would love to. You also had occasion to play with Jocko Pistorius on after... Yeah, I knew knew of Jocko before almost anyone, because uh, on spring break from high school or even the college kids, at that time, they would go to Fort Lauderdale, 
And so, so when I was in high school, you know, a bunch of us went down to Fort Lauderdale, sleeping on the beach, whatever it was. I'm sure it wasn't anything much more than that. But there was talk all over the place about this local bass player. It was just phenomenal beyond belief. There was a buzzword about it. So uh, at the time of my first album, which I think was 76, Landed Midnight Sun, I invited him to play on it. And that was uh, surprisingly, that was the first time he ever had recorded in a studio. With what? Anyone. Yeah, and from there he went to play on Beanie's record. But I had recommended him because uh, Bobby Columbia, the drummer of Blood, Sweat, and Tears, was looking for a bass player. They just lost the guy they had. So I, I recommended Jocko. This is long before Weather Report. They took Jocko in the band, probably for a short time, and then uh, and then uh, Weather Report picked him up. Incredible. So, the great story is, uh, so when my second record, Elgin Gypsy, hit, uh, CBS... Uh, because they also had heavy weather, the weather report second and first record or second record with Jocko. That was their biggest record, heavy weather. And they had Elga Gypsy released the same week. So they put a tour together. We co-headlined uh, a whole U.S. tour. So I hung out with Joe Zawinul and Jocko every night oh. after the show. Wow. This is just incredible. You've played – okay, so – Stanley Clark, Jocko Pistorius, these guys are are legends, okay, and and so and all of you're a legend too. Uh, that age of music, John McLaughlin, as you said, Mahavishnu Orchestra, Billy Cobham was out. This was an explosion of music that I don't think has been paralleled no. since. What is your sense of no. that? Well, we well we spearheaded the whole new movement. It was definitely highly cutting edge, you know, because prior to that, you either had rock or jazz, you know, and, and, you know, when you get the fusion of those two elements, the way we did it, it was the kind of technical velocity that was displayed, you know, it became a new thing. There wasn't anything before it you could compare it to. And it was the height, also the glory days of the record business. You know, which we're not in now, but yeah, you know. absolutely not. <laughs> you know, but we miss it. We miss it. But anyway, we we made an impact, and you know, for me, it was only a two-year thing, and then I was out on my own with my own bands from Elgin Gypsy on. Uh, and by the way, thirty-five records later. Wow. You know, a lot of solo records. Talk to me about the Friday Night in San Francisco album. That is okay. just stunning. Yeah, that was, you know, that was another blessing because, you know, I first uh, I first kind of discovered that there is this guy named Paco, and he's like the new local legend in, in Spain. So, he did, so when Return to Forever got to Spain on our first European tour, uh, people were just all, you know, constantly talking about, you got to hear Paco, you got to hear this guy. But it was kind of only in Spain, and maybe some other countries knew about him. But he was the new kid on the block in the flamenco world. So I went to a local department store, El Corte Inglés, 
had this record division, and I bought a bunch of his records, went back to Jersey, played them, and definitely was floored, knocked out. Hmm. You know, a whole new approach, a very modern approach to flamenco, uh, adding percussion, and, you know, it was just very uplifting. His technique ability was, was beyond comparison. And I had it in the back of my mind to do something with him. So an Elgin Gypsy became, uh, in, you know, in, in the formation process before it was made, you know, who's going to play on the record. I, I mentioned to my product manager that it would be great if we can have him come over to uh, New York and uh, do this duet with me that I wrote. So they arranged it through his record company. They thought it would be great promotion for him, which it was. And, uh, and we did this duet at uh, Hendrix, Jimi Hendrix Studio, the Electric Lady. Electric Ladyland, yeah, the village. Yeah. So he comes into the studio. He didn't speak a word of English, but he had a friend of his that was interpreting. And he was nervous. He was out of his comfort zone, you know. I mean, I was nervous too, but he was even more nervous, I think, because it was definitely... He was looking to do something new, but, uh, he, you know, it took a lot of courage. So he wasn't exactly loose yet. So the first day we did about five takes, didn't have it yet. So his friend comes up to me and says, you know, Paco, he really needs to relax. He needs to have some, you know, uh, some reefer. <laughs> I said, well, Jesus, I don't smoke, but I have my friend, Michael. The, the Woodstock hippie friend yeah. that that introduced me, that got me the gig with Chick. <laughs> he happens to be in the next room. Let me get him. So Michael comes in and says, oh, I can get that. No problem. So he he secured what Paco needed. Paco, so Paco comes in the next morning, high as a kite, but feeling phenomenal. And that was the first take. So that's what's on the record. Wow. And what? at the end of that take, you can hear, if you turn up the volume, you can hear Paco go, <laughs> Everybody in the control, I had five people in the control room were just jumping and, you know, high-fiving. And it was a, it was one of those moments you go, that, you know, there's very few real magic moments, but that was one of them. So that led to the trio a few years later. And we were contacted by a very famous impresario in London. His name was Barry Marshall who's now like the guy for the Beatles and Elton John and everybody. But he started in the business with us, and it was his idea to put us together for, you know, a tour. So that two-month initial tour was, you know, long before cell phones and computers. That's, well, what is that? That's like an additional five to seven hours a day that we were practicing that we don't have now. Wow. Yeah. And John so we McLaughlin. Hotel yeah. Room, just, mm -hmm. yeah, John so we were really up there on the stage trying to impress one another. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's, that was the beauty of that trio. You know, one guy would have his chance to solo, and we'd both be sitting there, whoever it may be. It's completely knocked out. Then it's your turn. And you have to come up with something, you know. And, and the audience got the benefit of this, this you know, really healthy kind of uh, – competition-like dialogue in a way, you know, but we were all laughing and smiling because it was, it was, it was cool. You know, we were having fun doing it. That record so sold over 2 million copies. When in seven. history, 7 million copies? 7 million, 7 million. 
That has to be a record for what is what however you want to categorize it, jazz, jazz fusion, whatever. Those ca- 7 million records, 7 million records it's still selling like like you can't imagine. It's it's almost like it was yesterday in some places, you know. When you go when I travel around the world, it's always discussed or rebought, you know, at our merch stand or but there's times people are always referring to that infamous night, you know. So what happened was no one really knew, except for the people that went to the show, that there was a Saturday night. And I wound up with all of the tapes of the whole European tour, the first tour we did. I wound up with all those tapes because we mixed Friday night in San Francisco in White Plains, New York. So since I live right across the bridge, you know, they were all asking where we're we going to store this stuff. And so I said, well, you can put it in my house. I have room. So I have a tape room downstairs. And uh, periodically I would look through the tapes and I said, man, there's another night at the Warfield. So I know I've approached John and Paco once or twice over the years. And they were just too busy to even handle, you know, making a decision. So... Uh, 220, you know, when COVID thing hit, I called John up to see how he was doing and also mentioned, you better do something with these tapes, John. Yeah. So that's when I sent him a track or two and he was blown away. Yeah. Wow. What an incredible... I'm huffing and puffing. I'm, going, I'm walking around doing my 10,000 steps. Okay. <laughs> what, an, what an incredible career you have had. All right, I'm going to throw you one. And you, you may not be able to answer this. What was the most surprising thing that has happened to you in since you became a professional? Since you, after you joined Re, uh, Return to Forever, after you became a known entity in the music business, what, what, if anything, stands out for you as maybe your most surprising moment? Well, I mean, there was too many of them. The most is a hard one because, like, first one was, like, you know, discovering that John Lennon was in the next room, which meant that I got to see him in person, you yeah. know, play ping pong with his son and all. You know, and then there was another moment. Uh, the first tour of Santana came up and jammed with us. <gasps> I was still a 19-year-old kid, so, you know, I I just had memories of me at, 16 and 17 going in to see Santana at the Phil Maurice in New York. So that was a buzz and a half. And, uh, and Stevie Wonder joined us a couple of nights. In fact, the first time I went to L.A., uh, Return to Forever played at the famous Troubadour. Stevie was in the audience. Uh, a lot of celebrities were in the audience. And uh, I was asked to, to come down at, at the uh, rehearsal facility, SIR, where Stevie was rehearsing and sit in with them. So the very next day I went down, I played with Stevie. Oh know? my. So that was, so that's another one. And then I, the third one that comes to mind really quick is just really making, um, my first Beatles tribute record at Abbey road. <sighs> wow. That, that was for me, a career thrill. It was like, I hadn't had that kind of thrill like a child has. You know, when they're five years old going to Disney World, that kind of thrill that we don't have as adults. You know, not really. We've seen it all, done it all. But that was 
so extraordinary that, you know, I was like a child, you know. Wow. I want to go back to the Stevie Wonder thing because, again, this will show the influence that I think you had and that Return to Forever had. Around that time, Stevie was recording songs in the key of life. And on songs in the key of life is a song called Contusions. And that song sounds so much like it was influenced by Return. It's an instrumental with Wonder Love. And that song sounds like it was so influenced by the music that you were doing. It, It has to be. Because it was just like, wow, what is this? It was a total departure from anything Stevie had ever done on an instrumental side. But it was definitely, to me, influenced by the music that you were doing. Yeah, he was a, he was a huge fan of the band. And, you know, so several times he came to see Return to Forever. Uh, at least two or three times he came on stage and played with us. Wow. Also, we played, not only he sat in on our tunes, but he, he rehearsed a couple of his tunes from those the, well, the very well-known records, and uh, and then yeah, I became friends with Michael Sandello, who was a <gasps> his guitarist. Player. Yeah, he wrote uh, Maniac. You know, what do you call it? Maniac? Yeah, and he had a good solo on um, Bossa Nova. He had a solo album. It really didn't fly off the charts, but it's an amazing album. Yep, yeah, Michael was great. Yeah. Well, Al, this has been a pleasure. You have to tell folks where they can find you. You are appearing with Blue Note, and that is from June 7th to June 12th. Where can they go? Where can they find tickets? Uh, Wherever people go to find tickets is where they can find tickets. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I'm never in the ticket department. Usually my wife does that stuff. But, you know, uh, I'm sure online they'll, they'll get all the information, you know, or right at the box office. Absolutely. This has been a pleasure. Again, hopefully we're going to talk again. You're working on a new album. Can't wait to hear it. And maybe we'll get a sneak preview of it. Yeah, let me, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to send you a couple. You send me your address. Uh, I'll send you a couple of rough mixes because I like to get, you know, the the vibe out there. The, you know, the initial buzz going. But let me finish with this. When I got the gig with Chick and he called me in the apartment, I asked him what tape he had heard. He said, I heard a tape from your friend Mike. You know, and that, that's why we want you to join the band. I said, well, what tape was that? He goes, well, it was for New Year's Eve with Barry Miles. I said, oh, no, because that was the night that Michael slipped me a tab of acid. <laughs> and I was tripping. I, I'm not a drug guy, but he said, you, it's New Year's Eve. Trust me, you'll love this. And it was the most amazing trip. Because when I heard that tape after the fact, it was like I was playing lines that, that I don't know today. I don't know how I played those lines. Wow. Like, I never learned those lines. But things came out that were, like, pretty amazing. So I never really did tell a chick about that. Just, you know, Scientologists feel like you the drug stuff. But, you know, I do tell people, you know, how you get to Carnegie Hall? And they go, yeah, it's practice, practice, practice. And I go, no. It's acid, acid, acid. acid. <laughs> <laughs> In my case. Anyway, good talking to you. Al Diviola, what a treat. Thank you so much. And, man, I really, you know what, Chick Corea, and um, I am so, so Chick Corea, there has to be a different kind of a hall of fame for American music. Oh, yeah. And he, Absolutely. yeah, he is just, he is so missed. What an amazing. I mean, how, how a guy can, can 
improvise and play with that touch, that rhythmic abilities, but also write on the same, write, you know, be a composer at that level, at the same level as how he plays, is unique, you know. Yep. And uh, he had it all, and it was a big, it was a big inspiration to me. You know, no doubt about it. I credit him every every day, I, every show that I play. I mention that. Amazing. Thank you, Al Dumiola, and we shall be in touch. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you.